0: Hi, my name is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project, and I'm so excited because on Monday, September 3rd, we're having our first Courageous Conversations event. Now, those who have been rocking with us for a while know that we've done Courageous Conversations in the past, but it's been via Google Hangouts, where we take a scholar or pastor trained in a more conservative evangelical space and a scholar and pastor trained in a more mainline progressive space. And I'm so excited because we're moving from these Google Hangouts to an actual event that's going to be phenomenal. We have 24 scholars and pastors lined up to talk about things like sexuality, the authority of scripture, justice, Paul versus Jesus. It's going to be amazing. Some of the people that we have are Dr. Judy Finchers-Williams, Dr. Jarvis-Williams, Dr. Bruce Fields, Dr. Howard John Wesley, Dr. Delman Coates, Dr. Brianna Parker, Dr. Teresa Fry-Brown. I mean, it is going to be amazing. Dr. Yolanda Pierce, you don't want to miss this event. So I want you to go on Jude3project.com and register. Meet us in Chicago, Illinois on Monday, September 3rd. It's going to be a phenomenal experience. I don't think anything like this has ever been done. So join us as we make history. Now let's get to the Jew3 Project Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Tiffany Gill. Welcome, Dr. Gill. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Thank you for accepting uh, our invitation, we appreciate it. Before we get started, can you just let our audience know a
1: little bit about about you? So, um, above all, I am a, a follower of Christ, um, who the Lord has taken, I think, into some really interest on an interesting journey. Um, I came to faith actually in my first semester of graduate school, um, my first semester of a doctoral program um, where I was um, pursuing a PhD in American history. And I think it's just a really interesting moment for me to have come to faith. Um, So much of my faith, um, really the entirety of my faith has gone hand in hand with, my uh, pursuit of um, this doctorate and then eventually becoming a professor. So um, I have a PhD in American history from Rutgers University. Uh, I teach history and Africana studies. Um, I published a book called Beauty Shop Politics, African-American Women's Activism in the Beauty Industry that looks at the ways that um, beauty shops and beauticians were leaders in civil rights movements. Um, and currently, I serve as a deacon at Epiphany Fellowship Church in Philadelphia um, and work on the Woke Church Initiative as well as with women's ministry. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um... And so today, we're going to talk about something
0: that fits right into your Um, expertise—a kind of defending the faith through uh, history. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is something that's been important for Jude Three because one of the major pushbacks—I'm sure you've heard uh, it—Christianity being the white man's religion. Mm -hmm. Um, How have you navigated just your faith? and your, um, your studies and, and um, African American, I mean, American history.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, for me, um, when I read the stories of um, African Americans, it's, it's completely tied with the story of the American church. Um, and, And for me, it's, it's, it's important to make sure that that story is told in its entirety. Um, When I think about history, when I think about studying history, I think about how important history is to us theologically, right? If we think about so many of the Old Testament books are at their core historical accounts, right? Um, many, even if we look at the book of Acts and others, there, there there are accounts of what happened. And so to me, I find it just a real privilege and an honor to be able to tell stories, be able to tell stories with the understanding and knowing um, of God's providence and God's hand through it. And I think that when we look particularly at the history of African-Americans, a few things stand out. Um, One of the things for me is really the way that the black church as we know it was born as a persecuted church. And I think that's important for us to remember and keep in mind. Um, while Africans' engagement with Christianity predates the transatlantic slave trade, and, and you've had many experts on here who have talked um, about that to great effect, so I, I won't go there, but but once um, Africans were forced in chains here in the New World, um, their adoption of the faith was not a simple mimicry of, of what white folks told them it was. And, and to me, this is a real sort of miracle um, of God, that we can look at the history of those who were enslaved, those who were enslaved by people who claimed to love the the God that they were serving, right? Who used and manipulated scripture against them, even at a time when most of the enslaved people were illiterate, Um, but that there was an enduring faith, there was an ability to understand the truth of who God was and who God is in spite of that. And and for me, I think when we look at the difficulties that African-Americans and other oppressed groups continue to have, um, that's really the story that needs to be told. I know there's been a lot of attention lately of, of, of really kind of delineating what the history of American racism in the church has been. And that's important because we can't forget that. And unfortunately we still live with that. But I I love to just focus on and emphasize the history and the legacies of the black church and the theological richness that we can learn from that.
0: Yes. And I think that's, that's very, very important and a helpful tool in engaging people who have questions about um, Christianity and the black experience. Can you just talk about the, um the, the very beginning of the black church with richard allen and absolutely jones mm-hmm. and what happened that uh birth that Mm -hmm. Uh, birth of the Black church?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important in two ways to think about um, the birthing of the Black church, both the formal birthing of the Black church, um, which happens in Philadelphia um, at a moment of persecution, right? So Richard Allen and and Absalom Jones were worshiping at a predominantly white Methodist church in Philadelphia. Um, They were not able to sit among white parishioners. They were relegated to a balcony um, up top. Um, and then really the straw that broke the camel's back for them um, was when, while they were praying, they were dragged off their feet and beaten and thrown out of the church. And that was really a moment where they realized that not, and, and it's amazing to me that their reaction was not to turn away from God, right? Um, you know, many of us turn away <laughs> for, for less reasons, but but they knew that, that God was so worth pursuing until, but they realized they needed to build their own institution. They needed to have a church where it was safe for Black people to to worship God. I mean, just in its most simplistic way. That's really where it came from, where they could be free to worship God and learn scripture and be safe while they worship and pray. Um, And and what's beautiful about um, the church that they built, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, is that um, here in Philadelphia and and really at all across America, it is the longest held property by African-Americans. So that the um, Bethlehem Church Um, still exists um, on a similar plot of land that they bought um, back um, in the um, early 19th century. And so to me, what that also reflects is um, not just the enduring theological legacy of the Black church, but also the way that um, the Black church is, has been an institution builder um, in Black communities, that these spaces, this land that was owned um, is something that is an enduring um, legacy of, of what um, the Black church was. Um, but also, I think the um, what, what some scholars have called the invisible church is important to note. So while um, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones were free Blacks living in um, Philadelphia in the 19th century um, there of course were African Americans who were enslaved um, who were not able to um, to have the money and the resources to buy land although in some cases they did buy land for churches but for the most part um, on Sundays they would have their own what you know scholars call the invisible church where sometimes on larger plantations they may have attended um, church services with their slave masters and their slave masters families um, but often would spend the afternoon or the evening going out to wash arbors where they would have uh, worship experiences for themselves, where they were able to celebrate and worship God without the watching of slave masters and slaveholders. Um, and that's really where the theology of the Black Church was built. Um, there would often be, you know, a, an enslaved person or maybe even a free black who was a preacher. Typically, that was someone who was literate within the community. So when we think about Nat Turner and Nat Turner's rebellion, Nat Turner was a slave preacher um, in Virginia. And so they were getting the word from people who were literate oftentimes, people who knew the Bible and were teaching it to them. And so so it was not, uh, often there are these depictions that it was this very kind of emotional kind of church. And yes, there were expressions of worship that that um, were, were, were something that were part of their culture, but these also were places where theology was formed, where the Bible was taught, and where black folks were able to see a vision of God that was different than what was being force fed to them. Mm-hmm. That's
0: so important because I think you sharing that kind of changes the narrative in some people's minds as they're thinking through things. Because people only know things oftentimes in this day and age by memes, <laughs> uh, by conspiracy theory videos <laughs> yeah. and movies they've seen, right. um, <laughs> and not necessarily go going in depth in history. One of the things we get is by Dr. Umar Johnson, Mm -hmm. Um, he doesn't necessarily come to us and push back, but some of the people that subscribe to his thinking will say that the black church hasn't done anything economically to empower our communities throughout history. Um, Can you speak a little to that Mm -hmm. um, and what ways the black church has empowered our community through justice and um, through economics as well?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I always like to say that the survival of Black people in this country is itself a miracle of God and that Black people in this country would not have survived without the church, period, point blank. Um, not just as a place of, of spiritual sustenance, but also in terms of the, the real things that were happening there. So even if we look at Allen a and or some of these early churches, um, they were always about meeting the theological needs of people. But churches were also places where there were what were called penny saver clubs, which were our precursors, for example, to insurance companies that would not allow African-Americans to purchase burial insurance or other kinds of things. Those things were facilitated through churches. Um, really, that you know, there was no kind of um, state apparatus that was there to support African-Americans who fell on hard times. And again, these were communities that were very economically disenfranchised in the 19th and early 20th century. And so it was churches that would raise money to support families in times of need. So literally the survival of families was built on churches. When we look at the period of the great migration, as many African-Americans are transitioning and leaving the South and moving to the North, churches were on the forefront of helping African-Americans build the networks to get jobs to learn about housing, right? So very, very practical needs um, that were met. And then of course, when we think about the civil rights movement, we know that many of the leadership and you know uh, many of the, the kind of people who were on the front lines of the movement were people who were a part of churches. But also another piece we don't think about is that movements take money, right? Who was feeding the people at the marches? Who was raising money to get people out of jail during these movements? All of this is happening um, in and through the black church. And even today, uh, you know, the church that I attend and many churches, many black churches around the country are still the ones that are serving as places of refuge, not just for their members only, but also for the wider community. And 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 this is what I say also, that without sort of understanding and knowing the full history of the black church, um, it's, it leads us into all kinds of false ideas about who the church is. But even within the church, you know, when I think about the rise of things like the prosperity gospel. Um, In light of the history of the black church, that doesn't even make sense, right? Um, Where it's really churches that are all about kind of lifting up a particular leader, churches that, you know, condemn people for having hard times and for suffering, that the Black church has always had a very robust theology of suffering. The Black church has always been on the front forefront of meeting people's, not just spiritual needs, but seeing it very linked to practical needs. Um, and so when I even look now as, as debates are going on about you know the gospel and the social gospel and the impact of churches, To me, you know, black churches have always been there and now other churches are beginning to catch up on that, but I'm like, that's who black churches have always been. So um, it's just false that they have not been there. Have there been abuses within the church? Absolutely. Are there churches that are contributing to declines in communities, Um, churches that are trying to fleece people? Absolutely. But in the same way that enslaved people were able to see the difference between the true gospel of Christ And the false gospel of slaveholders, I think it also would do us well to understand that, you know, there are people who are saying and doing things in the name of Christ who aren't believers um, and that there are, there is a true gospel and that the black church um, has a tradition of being connected to that true gospel.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's important that you noted that if they can know truth, the difference between the true gospel and a false gospel, without even being literate in some spaces, right? Right. And then, um, then we should not necessarily be overly concerned mm-hmm. that people can tell the difference
1: off the right, right. And that's really a miracle. I mean, I really sort of sit with that, right? As as much as people are theologically trained and all these degrees and all of that, um, that we discount. Like, why aren't slave narratives being taught in seminaries, right? as the, you know, reading Frederick Douglass and when he is calling out the white American church for its hypocrisy, reading Henry McNeil Turner, these are theologically rich documents reading slave narratives, reading, um, you know, some of the early church writings um, from the black church. They, these, these should be read in seminaries far and wide because they are grappling with many of the issues of the faith around suffering, around pain, et cetera. Like these people have so much to teach us. Um, and, and that to me as a historian is, is sort of my, my greatest honor and privilege, uh, you know, and I always tell my students that just because people did not have access to literacy or to the internet, or to Google, and all of that did not mean that they were less intelligent, right? That they there really is, and I think spiritually that that is the case too. They may not have had big church buildings or big titles or um, seminary degrees, but had an un, a rich understanding of the faith that was revealed to them by the Lord. That that I think we all would do well to to learn from.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned a name that I'm I'm sure many people aren't familiar with. They they know Frederick Douglass, but tell us a little bit about Henry McNeil Turner.
1: Yeah, Turner is a really um, interesting figure, um, church figure. There's a um, a scholar um, by the name of Andre Johnson that's done a lot of work of bringing his his writings together. But Turner was a part of of many um, different uh, kind of what we think of as what we might think of today as like civil rights organizations, but he was involved in, um, Questions around immigration, about whether African Americans could ever fully um, be free in America and whether or not we should go to Africa. He was involved in things known as the Colored Convention movements, um, which were gatherings of African Americans in the late 19th and 20th centuries, um, where they talked about not just issues of faith, but talked about, you know, practically, how do we live? How do we maneuver politically? How do we support ourselves? Um, But at his heart, he was a, a, a church leader. Um, And that's really the base and the basis from which he advocated um, and did his work. And I think there are so many folks, um, you know, biographies for people who want to get into kind of learning more about black church history. I think learning the biographies of these folks and reading their work and their writings um, and particularly for for women. um, I think there's such a rich and long tradition of of women um, in the black church who are, are calling us um, and, and could be instructive for us, I think, about Fannie Lou Hamer and Ida B. Wells, um, women who uh, were on the forefront of civil rights issues of their time, whether it's lynching in the case of Ida B. Wells or whether it's voting rights and freedom struggles in the case of Fannie Lou Hamer, um, what we can sometimes forget and obscure, um, and I think this happens a lot in, in um, the way that their narratives are told, is how deeply rooted they were in faith. Um, as women of God, and and really saw their advocacy as a reflection and an outgrowth of that faith. And so, I think there's just so many folks that we need to take their faith seriously. Um, and and understand and study the way that their faith um, formed a theology that really led to their activism.
0: Yeah, faith did not make them docile.
1: Not um, at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> uh, not at all. I mean, you know, they they understood the gospel in really comprehensive ways, um, and not as just a matter of personal salvation, which is important, but understanding that, you know, we're, we're doing kingdom work, right. And that, that kingdom work is so much bigger than that. Um, and look. God's light is not shining, and so the lynching of black men, um, and in many cases women, was one of those areas where Wells used her platform as a journalist to express the injustices there. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, with the the beatings that she received for trying to vote, and seeing the economic injustice in her community in rural South, uh, excuse me, rural Mississippi, um, saw that as a as an affront to the kingdom of God and her work um, reflected that.
0: And it was uh, many people marching alongside Dr. King that people that were women that people forget about. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, as as King as important as he was, as important as many of his his documents and calling out, you know, letter from Birmingham Jail is, you know, is one of the again in the tradition of Douglas doing that. But but really, um, the 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 foot soldiers of the movement were in many cases these. Women whose stories we still haven't fully told and embraced, and the and what they did is that they use the organizational structures of the black church to organize movements. Right when we think the civil rights movement wasn't just like oh people would just run out in the streets and have a march, those were highly organized, um, highly strategized uh, moments, and and really the place. Where, where many of these women in particular who were involved in building that infrastructure, where they learned that, that those skills and where they learned how to implement and the, the networks that they use came directly from, from their experiences in church.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's important that we highlight that the church wasn't on the sidelines, but they were active. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't wanna overemphasize because there is a romanticized view mm-hmm. that all black Churches were right, no, and it was a small percentage. Can you talk about a little bit about the percentage and the resistance that uh, some of black churches gave um, Mm -hmm.
1: leaders like MLK and those that were working with him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when we look at the history of the civil rights movement and those who were either actively engaged or in leadership or even those who participated in marches, it's a small percentage of people um, and, and and even a smaller percentage um, in terms of the church, that there was um, an outcry. There were fears, particularly as people are getting arrested, um, that this was seen as disruptive, that this was seen as, as countering um, the work of the church. And so there were um, religious leaders who came out against King, there were religious leaders that would preach to their congregations not to get involved in this work, and again, you know i I you know, I don't necessarily see that as as an affront to the history and legacy of the black church because often many of those churches who may have been a bit concerned about the tactics that were being used. Within the movement, right? So even though we have, and, and there were multiplicity of tactics. So we know very much about the kind of nonviolent tactics of the civil of, of Martin Luther King and his organizations, but nonviolence was not passive, right? So there were people who were who thought that was too radical of going to spaces that were segregated and sitting in knowing that you would be arrested. Knowing that you would be beaten and that would um, bring about the news media and all that. There are people who challenged that. And then, there, of course, were people in the movement who believed in um, self defense as part of the movement. Um, and so, you know, I think what that really just demonstrates, um, it, but even though they disagreed on tactics many of these same Black pastors still believe that Black people should have full citizenship and should be free in America, right? They just believed in different ways of doing it. And I think that that's okay, right? Like we should never expect or look, um, even within Black churches, and expect that everybody is going to agree on what the issues are and how to tackle them. So we really see a diversity of ideas. And I think um, reading them and studying these, studying them and even looking at the debates among black Christians, again, is something fruitful. I know the, what you're gonna be doing in Chicago coming up in September um, of having folks on different sides of the theological questions, but are still very much so, you know, in conversation and a part of the black church, having those conversations, I think is just, is, is we need more of that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about what the work that you're going to be doing with that.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited about it too.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, As long as it doesn't stress me out. uh, (laughs) I'm sure it's a lot of work. (laughs) Your reward will be in heaven. (laughs) Uh,
0: I think everything that you shared was really helpful and important Um, for those who are looking to get more into Black history, Black church history, what resources would you recommend for them?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll just give a name, names of some authors for them to look at that have written, um, some really good and, and powerful texts. Um, people, scholars like John Blassingame, um, who's written a lot about slavery and enslaved churches. Um, Albert Raboteau was another author, another historian scholar um, who has written extensively on it. I mentioned um, the collections of Henry McNeil Turner's writings by Andre um, Johnson. Um, and then I would also recommend um, some of the work done in uh, African-American women's history, uh, most notably, um, Evelyn Higginbotham's work, Righteous Discontent, where that very often used and misused and abused phrase, politics of respectability or respectability politics, um, actually originated in that work, which is part of a history of women within the black Baptist church movement. Um, And I'm I'm blanking on folks now, it's gonna, gonna, oh goodness. There's so many great works on there. Maybe we could do a link or something later. I'm blanking on titles now, but um, the work of of Barbara Savage on religion. uh, religion. There there are just many people um, whose work um, that people can start. And like I said, biographies, um, making sure that you're reading, biographies by reputable scholars, um, <laughs> things with footnotes, I always say, um, make sure, you you know, these are folks, you know, men, some of these others are not believers, right? Like, it's okay, we can still learn something. Um, we should be reading this stuff. But yeah, make sure it's stuff that is, you know, not just things floating around the internet, but something with some footnotes, with some research, with some archival digging, um, th- those are the places to go. Yeah, biographies on people like Fannie Lou Hamer. China Kai Lee has a great biography on her. Um, yeah, there's there's great work out there.
0: Before I let you go, uh, you mentioned respectability politics. Can you go into that a little bit?
1: Oh goodness! Um, <laughs> I, I sigh because it's it's really interesting to me because um the book where the term "The Politics of Respectability emerged," like I said it was this book about black Baptist women and it was published back in nineteen ninety two and so and it's a phenomenal book I, I It's one of my favorites, but it's been interesting to see how that discussion has come back in the twenty first century and and really kind of been i think manipulated to to wrong ends and so I think in um sort of contemporary um black freedom struggles of which you know black lives Ma- black lives matter and others are a part of um i i and i could be wrong and, and and stepping out of line here but i think there's a lack of appreciation in some cases for the history of previous movements, this whole idea of like, this is not your grandmother's civil, you know, you're not your grandmother's movement. I'm like, well, it depends on who your grandmother was, right? I mean, uh-huh. there were people who were doing this kind of work before. Um, and so this idea of the politics of respectability is, I think, a, a criti- it's a part, at its heart, it's a critique of some of the, what people might consider moral-based Um, actions and arguments that um, previous civil rights um, struggles have had. Um, This whole idea that Black people have to present themselves as, you know, respectable and without flaw in order to um, be seen as worthy of civil rights, worthy of freedom. And I think there's a critique there. I mean, I think there's, there's some flaws to that. But I also think that to completely dismiss that as you know this this outdated notion is really insulting um these folks were dignified people who wanted to present themselves in particular ways in some cases based on their background in the church right so they would go to the movement um when you look at old footage of civil rights um of the civil rights movement you'll see people um dressed like they're going to church right and, and that was again part of a, na- a visual narrative of yes respectability but also, this is the honor that these people brought to these movements coming out of church traditions. And so I think we just have to be really careful that we can make critiques of some of the strategies, some of the ways that they marginalize women, et cetera. But to do that in a way that doesn't completely dismiss the movement and the work that was done.
0: Yeah. And <laughs> oftentimes, you know, so, uh, you've a historian, you know, this we in this generation, my generation will think, uh, my, aunt, our generation will think we're doing
1: something new when None it's of really that. not new. None, <laughs> of it. None of it, right. Like they're creating something, I'm like, you know, and it's great, there are innovations and all that, but I'm like, you would, you know, people would do well to look at what people did and what worked and what didn't. But yeah, I, I think there's sort of this millennial idea that everything that you that millennials do is new. And, and, you know, as a historian, I just, like you said, I just sit back and chuckle and be like, here, read a book. <laughs> Yeah, I I think
0: what you mentioned is really, really good, especially when it comes to like the dressing up, because I hear people, you know, saying that, well, kind of shunning like Mm -hmm. like dressing up because they're like, well, Mm -hmm. we don't need to do that. And I always think it's interesting. Oftentimes it's artists that do that and they don't have the necessarily the responsibility of going into a corporate world. Mm -hmm. So they have that liberty to Mm -hmm. say, I'm not going to dress up, I'm going to, you know, Just be who I am, be free and creative. Right. But the majority of culture has to go in a job, especially if you've graduated from college, you have to go and you have to dress up. And that's Mm -hmm. just, no matter what race you are, that's kind of the standard. Mm -hmm. So it's always interesting talking about taking your P's and Q's on everything in culture from creatives because they don't necessarily have the responsibilities that other Mm -hmm. others have.
1: Yeah. And even I mean, I think even within church, right? You know, there's there's, you know, conversations about and I think that's right, like church should become as you are. You shouldn't have to dress up or feel pressure to do so. But don't dismiss that, right? Like, you know, when I think about why Black women, black women wore big church hats and why they dressed up on Sundays, many times these women were domestic workers during the week where they had to wear a uniform. And Sunday was the time where they got to not just be some, you know, where they were considered, um, you know, by the people that they worked for, just dismissed them, called them by their first names, didn't give them respect. Church was a place where, you know, we gave them titles and honor. They were, you know, deaconess so-and-so and, and you know, first lady this, and they wore their their outfits, their outfits. and they put on their best, right? Their best, right? That this was if a place they the where they could be today, free to, free to, express, to express, themselves express themselves and give honor to God and really dignity for themselves, right? So, So sometimes when we look at certain traditions, you know, they may seem outdated to us or may seem unnecessary, but, you know, as a historian, I always like to think about, well, why? Like, why is dressing up or was dressing up, and in some circles still is, um, so important in the Black church? What did that mean? Well, if you're in a job as a man or woman where you are dismissed and your body is broken down and Sunday was a place where you worship and honor God, you wanted to give it your all, right? So, So I think context is everything. Um, and and I think that even as we're we're looking at new ways of innovating, even as we're raising important critiques of institutions and and tactics and strategies, not to be so overly dismissive that we miss the things we actually can learn from them.
0: Yeah, because it, it was something that was helpful that. Um... Dr. Wesley said uh, Mm. uh, some years ago that I heard him say, because when he was making the distinction between why titles are so important in the black church where people like to be called bishop Mm -hmm. and elder. And I'm like, well, you know, you go to white church, they'd be like, well, call me Mike. First name, right, exactly. You call him (laughs) first name, right? (laughs) And so you're like, well, white churches are more, you know, in touch with humility than black churches. Mm. And then when you think about, you know, Dr. Wesley made the point of understanding the history and how people were treated, yeah. Through Monday through Saturday. Mm-hmm. It was important
1: for them to have some dignity. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Monday. To honor. Right. You know, like these are places where we can honor people that never get honored anywhere else. So, yeah. You know, I I, I think there's something really beautiful about that.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr.
1: Gill. Uh, how can people get in contact with you on social media? I am at Sable Victorian, S-A-B-L-E Victorian on Instagram and Twitter.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been a rich conversation and I know our viewers will enjoy it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew three project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible Engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching ju 3 project and it'll be right there for you so thank you again remember if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver you can do so on our website or by mail just go to ju 3 projectcom hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.